episode from the third series of my podcast In Bed with Neil Moody. I'm your host Neil Moody. To be notified of any other episodes remember to go and subscribe. I'm excited to introduce to you my marvellous guest today Tom Chapman. Tom is an award-winning internationally renowned barber and founder of the very successful charity Lions Barber Collective. He's also a multi-published author and public speaker. So without further ado let's go meet Tom where he talks about his childhood how he became a hairdresser then barber, and why he formed the Lions Barber Collective after the sad, sudden death of a very close friend. Hi Tom, lovely to see you here in King's Cross. Thanks for coming. I just want to start with, basically, we're going to talk about your life. Where were you born, and what was your upbringing like? How would you describe it? Okay, so I was born in Maidstone in Kent, and uh, I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. I have fond memories of my childhood. I had a great childhood. I was very, very lucky. I had a very supportive mum and dad, uh, very close to my family. Um, they always, looking back at it now, they always made me feel safe in whatever this, you know, whatever decision I made to do anything. I was always, I was always supported. It was mm. always sort of, oh, it doesn't matter. You can do this. You know, if I wanted to do, I did everything as well, from like rugby to cricket to football to. I was in a bagpipe band. I did army cadets. I did. Backpipe. I was. I know. Yeah. <laughs> not in Scotland. Not, wow. No, no, no. That was when I lived in the Isle of Man. But I, I, um, I did all sorts of things, and they always said to me, "Yeah, go for it. Try it out. Do it. You know, whatever." If, every time I didn't, yeah, like learn the instruments, things like that. Um, double bass. I really wanted to learn that, and so I wanted to be in there. I always had that sort of like um, attraction towards that nineteen fifties Americana rockabilly. I remember seeing an Elvis film at Nan's house, and mm. I was like, "I want to play that double bass." Yeah. I remember doing it at school and I was like yeah I'll play it and then I went to the lessons and they basically wanted me to be in the orchestra they needed a big person mm. who could who could carry a double bass and play <laughs> you know they sort of, sort of conned me into it a little bit and I got there and I was playing three blind mice with a bow and I thought this is not <laughs> you know taking it home on the bus on yeah. the school bus and that and yeah so that's mum and dad no I don't actually know what this is not for me I want to play different sort of music and they and they said yeah fine no worries and, and there was always that support of Mm. Yeah, if you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. If you do want to do it, we'll support you anyway. Um, so I had a really lovely upbringing. We moved around a little bit. Like I said, I lived in Maystone until I was 10, then moved to the Isle of Man when I was 10 until I was 15. Um, and that was an amazing time because I went from in Kent. It was very, um, we had great times. We used to go to like Bournemouth and Hastings and go to the beach every weekend. But it was very much pack up the car, drive for three hours for mm. a Saturday on the beach. You know, whereas I went to the Isle of Man and it was my dad said it's very much like having his childhood going back right. to, you know, back in time to the sort of fifties, sixties because yeah. you know, you, you Is that where he was from? No, it just it just, it was just so free over there. You know, we went from Kent where we had to be watched all the time to the Isle of Man where my mum and dad just went, Yeah, go on and off you go and we went down the beach, we, oh, it was ten ten yeah. to fifteen, down the beach fishing, they had tram lines there, he's got the mountains, they had the T T races and motorbikes and we used to disappear for days. Yeah. Yeah, go camping in the glens and swimming in the rivers and the sea and all the rest mm. of it. So it was really great. And then we, when I was 15, we moved to Devon. So we were in, I've been in Devon ever since. Right. Apart from a brief stint in Norway a couple of years ago. I'd say I had a great upbringing. I was always supported with the, the hairstylist mm. journey as well. You know? So would you say your hobbies were playing the bass? Is that one of your um, main ones? Or? I would say, you know, so for me, music was a big thing. I always wanted to play instruments. Never really 
found it that easy. I was, I, you know, I did a bit of double bass, did a bit of bass guitar, played in a couple of bands, you know. I was in bands. That was like my main drive, my goal, ambition was to go and play on stage around the world, touring mm. and be in front of people, be in bands. And I was very much into sort of my heavier music. Mm. Um, and I started off at Tony and Guy when I was probably, uh, I finished my 11 or so, Tony about 18. So, but that point, up until probably 26, I loved doing hair. That was mm. my day job. Day to day, I went to the hairdressers and Tony and Guy and other independent stop- stores that I worked in. And I loved it. I had a great time. But my goal was to be in a band. And I played in different bands. We had, you know, lots of little mini tours in the back of a mm. crappy little van and <laughs> smelly boys and alcohol and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and we had great formula support from good bands. And then I had one band that, um, called No Such Thing as a King. And it's actually a video on YouTube of our, one of our songs out there still. It's quite, quite heavy. But we... We did quite well. We had a couple of offers, two or three offers, meeting with record labels and all that shit. But one of the guys wouldn't never sign a contract, and you know he said oh, that's a bad deal. And so they're all bad deals. They're all to start off with. They're all crap deals. You just need to get the music out there. Yeah. And and when that band split up, that's when I realised that that I why you know why don't I put that effort into hair? Mm. And that's kind of, you know... Uh, yeah. What made you choose hair though? Because that's such an opposite from being in a band <coughs> playing heavy. Rock music, right? Yeah, I guess. Oh, yeah, massive. Well, uh, yeah, it is, it is, it is. What was it? I suppose it is, it is. But, I, you know, I think that, you know, music inspired my hair. Right. You know, so, like, I was into music, right? Punk, metal, death metal. Yeah. Reggae, classical, everything. Just music. I love music. I brought up, my parents listened to music, all different types of music. Reggae and soul and Motown and disco and rock and, I don't know, pop, all sort of funk, mm. everything, you know? I used to do my hair, I used to do my mate's hair, my hair, mohawks, you know, or, you know those kind of looks, you know what I mean? Were well, you the like, band hairdresser? Was, yeah, basically <laughs> I was, yeah. I used to cut on my mate's hair, I was, at sec- I was at secondary school, so I did, yeah, I, I wanted to go, I said I played a lot of sports, I was going to go and do some sort of, you know, sporting something along yeah. the line, and I went and did my A-levels, and actually, you know, I found that music was more my drive, and I was, I basically, a little piss taken out of me when I was doing PE at A-levels, because I had a, Pink mohawk with leopard right. print on the side, and the, and the PE teacher couldn't get his head around that. Nah. I, mean, I thought, Joe, you know what? Fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. This is just like, this is monster. I gave it up in the first year. And academically, I was, you know, doing all right. I was going to go to university and do ancient history and Egyptology because I found a yeah, great interest in that kind of adventure the ancient history. I still do mm. like quite ancient history. I think it's amazing, you know. I thought it'd be quite an interesting job. I mean, it wasn't going to be like Indiana Jones. I'd probably be stuck in some museum <laughs> somewhere, but, you know, <laughs> the yeah. fantasy of it as a 17-year-old. And it was my mum that said to me, so I was going to go to uni, and my mum said to me, why, what are you doing that for? Why don't you go and do hair? Because you do your mate's hair, you do your hair. I've never actually even considered it as mm. a as a as a job or opportunity or a, yeah yeah I didn't really think because when you're at school you're yeah I was good enough to, I did my five GCSEs C or above or whatever C you go well you're going to A levels you know, yeah because that was back yeah. when you had to you didn't have to do sec, you didn't have to do that higher education so mm. it was you're doing this you tick this box so you go that way if you hadn't my friends that didn't get their five C's or above went off to do they were like. You can go into the army, or you can be a hairdresser, or you can be a chef, or you yeah. can be a... And I kind of went down that route. And then, you know, I was going to go to do my A-levels. I go, go to your uni, sorry. And mum suggested that. And I went in and told my teachers, that, you know, actually, you know what? I'm not going to go to... I'm not going to go to uni. I'm going to go and... I volunteered at Tony and Guy locally for, like, the summer. Well, the, the last six weeks of my A-levels, I did that on a Saturday. Mm. Sunday, I worked at this local leisure park place. 
walking two pound ten an hour, and then, <laughs> and, then, and then and then I was working doing my A level. So I finished my A levels, did it. But all my teachers said to me, they were basically disappointed in me. Why would you go and do hairdressing? Why are you not going to do? You mm-hmm. can go to university. Why would you not go to university? The only one that didn't wasn't upset was my uh, sociology teacher. Who was a, a lesbian feminist called Miss Manly, and she's <laughs> just brilliant. Isn't it? What a brilliant <laughs> name! But she was fantastic, and she, and she, you know, she thought it was great because I was a heterosexual male going into hairdressing. Right. She thought it was brilliant, it was break, mm. breaking social norms and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So she was excited. But when I got to Tony and Guy, I got the job. All the girls I was working with had the similar attitude. They're like, oh, "I wish I'd worked harder." Like, Why? What are you doing doing hairdressing? I mm. wish I'd worked harder. And I was thinking, what's going on here? Why does mm. Why is there such a negative? energy around going into the hair industry I just couldn't yeah. get my head around it because I thought this is amazing I'm not stuck in a I'm not stuck in a classroom lecture mm. you know being bored by you know tutors with you know nostril hair and BO I'm yeah. here I'm here in this amazing amazing environment creative and fun and yeah. doing you know being you know I was an assistant and I was being you know I had a guy called Tim Milan there and a guy called John Moody who was my two sort of managers who were amazing mentors mm. for me as well and I can remember sitting there and they just had doing my uh, thumb exercises with my scissors okay. sitting there when, yeah. I first started. And when they first had that Tony and Guy TV up on the walls and there was an image of someone on stage with long hair this guy and I was watching him do hair and I was like hang on a minute that's Tim who, mm. was, who was my manager there that was, that was my first kind of thing something switched in me and went actually you, don't ha- you can do this yeah. he's here mm. he's done that it's accessible we don't have to just be one dimensional stuck behind a chair doing Doris's shampoo and set every Wednesday yeah. morning. You know, it's this, yeah, you know, see the multi dimensional almost part yeah. of, of, yeah. of what the hair industry is it's about. It's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, I had a, not the same but a similar route to you. Like when I was at school, I was doing everything and I was I was learning to play four instruments badly, but you know, yeah. and actually as a as a musician, my best thing was my voice, and I used to sing, and, yeah. and everyone was like, "You're a really good singer," and da 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 da. And the same thing, I was, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a bit older than you, but we had this thing where you had to go and meet your careers advisor and talk about what you were doing. And and I said, I want to be a journalist. And, you know, my English teacher said to him, oh, Neil doesn't concentrate well enough to become a journalist. (laughs) And so I I picked hairdressing again because I was doing my hair or my mate's hair. It was the 80s. And of course, everyone was like, you can't do that. You're wasting all your, you know, your braininess (laughs) that you have. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm brain of Britain, but you know, I was I was smart enough yeah. to be able to do other things. But I don't know. If something for me said there's something in hairdressing that I think I could take, yeah. and I think it was that the creativity of it. And it, I think it's a shame in a way because hairdressing still has that element of people thinking it's a job for people with no qualifications, yeah. probably you know not much going for them, and maybe they can go and do hairdressing. But actually, there's so much more to it yeah. than that. Isn't it? It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's such an incredible. It, it, it's frustrating because it's it's all like I'm just a barber. I'm just a hairdresser. I'm I'm just a beautician. And, yeah. And it's nonsense. I mean, I found myself saying it a few times as well. You know, but actually, is the hair industry's given me amazing opportunities. I mean, I mean, like so, I've done loads of different things. It's enabled me to travel the world. It's enabled me to uh, be. You get on television, do stuff with radio, do podcasts, meet amazing people, write books, start a yeah. charity, save lives. You know, it, it's it's an incredible thing. I think yeah. it's something that's so undervalued because you know, I think there's a lot that people could learn from the hair and beauty industry. Because not only do you have to do a hugely skilled job, which a lot of people have found out during lockdown when they've been trying to cut their own hair, <laughs> yeah, exactly. like awful. Yeah. You know, 
and they've got, oh, actually, this is actually quite hard. I thought it was easy. And it's like, well, you don't train for years to, to mm. do it. And, you know, not only can you do that, but you can ha- hold a conversation with somebody. You can have personal skills with people. Mm. You can, you know how to, you're on stage all day, every day. You know, you yeah. always say you have to be at the, a social chameleon. Yeah. You, know, you evolve to whoever's in your chair. It's still you, mm. but you need to know. You know, I always say some of my clients, you know, that, you know, think I'm a, you know, outstanding, good member of society, and then some of you will know the real me. But you know, but it's, but it's just, yeah. you just you just you just react to people differently, and I think that's a huge skill as well that mm. a lot of people don't have. A lot of people can't hold a conversation. Yeah, and I think you know the life skills that you learn from being a being a hairdresser or a barber are just invaluable. I think a lot yeah. of people would learn a lot from this industry. Totally. When did you decide to become a barber? Because I read that you were self-taught. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So um, I. So I started off turning guy, and obviously back then, back then, I mean, it's changed now. They didn't do any hair clipper work. You mm. had scissor over comb. Scissor over comb was better than clipper work. Always, all that, yeah. yeah. All that always, they used to yeah, tell us. Yeah. All this stuff, you know, um, with your repetitive strain injury in your thumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But... Thanks for that, guy. My <laughs> thumb's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was that whole thing, and you know, and I was so when I was at turning guy, it was uh, when Tim left. It was me, John. Michael Barry and then all girls and none of them wanted to do the men's hairdressing none of them wanted to do the short haircut um, so they would always get booked in my column because they knew mm. that I had mates as a bloke so I was cutting their hair all the time and it just kind of happened I became more I had a bit more experience with men's hair I started to really enjoy it and I kind of like the fact that actually it always it's always a big difference when a guy comes in even if it's reasonably short and they go to a skin fade or they go to a taper or go, it looks different every single time from the start to finish whereas yeah. you'd end up getting lots of girls that come and go I just want a trim yeah. or, or I don't want it too short I don't want too much off it I don't want any layers I want to change you like that boring don't, <laughs> don't want a fringe you know, <laughs> yeah. so yes yeah. yeah, so you just do like a quarter of an inch trim off the bottom one length but you know, it was nice to do the to do that and I kind of built up a bit of a following in Torquay I mean it's a small town you know mm. seaside town and, and then I um, opened my own store in 2011, I've got written here. Yeah, yeah. 2011, <laughs> good research. Um, and, and I kind of used that as a as a platform, really. It wasn't. It was a, a, a salon, but I was also also become a studio. It become mm. a live music venue. It become a uh, an event, you know, venue. It become, it become you know, all sorts of stuff. We did loads in there, and that was when I sort of started getting contacts within like photographers locally. I mm. started doing entrance and more competitions and started focusing more and more on men and then one of the uh, guy called Grant uh, from uh, Fab in Fab Wholesale and Exeter Wholesale Education he came to me and said that I want you to do some education I can watch what you're doing he said what, what would you say you specialised in oh god I don't know what was that? Yeah, and that was when it just clicked to me I went oh men's hair mm. and that's kind of where it kind of um, that's how the, the men's focus of me being a barber yeah. came about but it was always had a little bit of that sort of uh, imposter syndrome around it because I wasn't a barber, but I was starting to get known for men's hair. I can remember going to the first um, Great British Barber Bash in Liverpool where I was cutting on stage and I'd entered the competition and blah blah blah. You know, I was thinking, shit, what if they find out I'm not a barber? What if they find? Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, after talking to a lot of them, most of the guys who were there who were doing well within the barbering scene had come from the hairdressing scene mm-hmm. and. Just specialised in men's hair. Yeah. Um, so it was actually kind of like a bit of an eye-opener for me. But then becoming an educator in the last, I would say in the last 
Um, God, how many years has it been now? Five, six, six or so, six, seven years since I've been properly educating mm. men's hair. I've learnt more in that in probably the six years before, uh, sort of six years after I started that, instead of the sort of 14 years before that, because mm. I was around barbers or hairdressers or learning from them and doing stuff on stage and I've picked up so much more yeah. in the last sort of six years and I did it's amazing actually isn't it how barbering now has become so oh, massive huge and there's barbers everywhere I mean even around here there's like 400 years the fact that it's exploded so much yeah um, and obviously that's all to do with men wanting to groom themselves more and yeah. all that kind of thing too would you say though that your hairdressing training helped with the barbering because these days a lot of people just go into Obviously, back in the day, people would do barbering and not much else. But because yeah. barbering's moved to another level in terms of the styles that people have and the haircuts, yeah. do you think your hairdressing training and career helped with that, or Massive. would you? Yeah, Massive, massively. Yes, I mean, I so actually, my my first book, which I self published, called The Barber Boom, was kind of based around this mm. because I was starting to travel. I was having these these sort of conversations in bars and backstage all around the world with all these different people. It always came down to the same thing, talking around barbering. And this was probably five years ago that I wrote that book now. It's lots of different interviews in it. And I, it, I was just asking them similar kind of questions. Like, why is it, why do you think barbering's kicked off? Why do you mm. think it's happened? Who do you think is, how can we future-proof barbering? What do we need to do going forward? You know, what's the best products? Are, you know, are competitions important? All these kind of conversations mm. and debates that we've had over a couple of drinks in a, in a hotel lobby bar. But... The thing for me is, you know, I think barbering really, really kicked off recently because of the fade thing coming mm-hmm. in and the footballers and the high-profile people having skin yeah. fades. And, and, you know, David hair, Beckham's got a lot to answer yeah, with the hair. But my, my sort of... I mean my, that in a good way. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, my, yeah, definitely. I mean, my sort of thing is, you know, for David Beckham, I think that the men's... The barber boom happened probably five or six years ago. It was really kicked off. But I think David Beckham and people that started that, you know, when I first started out in the hair industry... Guys were starting to have the mullets then and having the GHD straightening, and, mm. which was like completely unheard of. Um, but then the fade game really, really took it back to barbers because barbers are taught how to use clippers, mm. and that's what they specialise in. Hairdressers weren't taught how to use clippers, and no matter what what you say, there's no easy or useful way of doing it. You can do a skin fade with scissors. I've seen it done, but it's not really. You know, what are you talking yeah. about? Do you know what I mean? Is that, it's not quite a sharp, is no, it? No, and, and do you know what? It's not going to... It's the time it takes and the rest of it, and it's just not going to be what, they, what they've come for because they want these fades that, you know, coming from these mm. urban barbershops. So that's what really kicks off because you don't need to go to your hairdresser so many times trying to get a fade and it look crap and then you go somewhere else. So everyone started going to the barbers. But I do think also, you know, actually... This is the most exciting time in men's hair ever because you've got so much diversity, anything goes, and we're starting to combine fading and that sort of stuff because with, with longer hairstyles and colour and all the rest of it, and I think that the hairdressers are in a better place because hairdressers are really good at education. Mm. It's been drummed into us since we started. Tony and Guy, you know, it's all about the education. If you look at any of the Dalsasu, any of the headmasters, any of the big, you know, mm. they, have a, they have an education programme. And yeah. it's, it's just ingrained into us as part of our, mm. you know, part of our DNA almost to keep on educating. Whereas barbers, a lot of times, very short, quick um, education, then you're on the shop floor and that's it. You never do any, you know, ongoing education. That is changing. But I think if you look at hairdressers, they know how to, they know about products, mm. they know about styling. They know about you know the blow drying, the plaiting, the colouring. They're mm. very much all rounders, and all they had to do was learn how to clipper 
pay. So they're just adding that into their massive toolbox. Yeah. But now the barbers, if they don't learn how to do scissor work, they don't know how to do colours, they don't do, soon trends change. Yeah. They do, and you're starting to see things like mullets coming back, longer hair coming back. It's not just skin fades. So if you mm. can only do skin fades, eventually the barber that does that is going to go, those are going to go out of business. Because yeah. if things are evolving, so I think to future proof it, the barber's doing great, but I think the hairdressers have the upper hand because they've just taken that fading game, slotted it in. Yeah. But I think, yeah, but also we're, we're creating this kind of modern barber that's just mm. completely changing the way they do things. Yeah. Can I ask you, what made you enter competitions, just, just out of interest? Because mm. I, I remember years ago, yeah. <laughs> when I first started training, I entered the L'Oreal Colour Trophy. Yeah. And I did so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I came like 45th in the regionals. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> And I remember thinking, I'm never fucking entering a competition ever again. And I never did. No. But it always fascinates me, the competition. Because I've realised over the years, especially now as I've become a judge for certain competitions, mm. like, you know, the most wanted, creative head, that kind yeah. of thing. I've realised the importance of them. Yeah. Because I think, you know, like I say, I started hairdressing in the 80s and we used to sort of poo-poo competitions a bit and be yeah. a bit like, oh, it's a load of bullshit. But actually, I've realised the importance of... The competitions now, especially for salons that are maybe out of the major cities, yeah. because it seems to give these companies quite a lot of gravitas. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I just wondered what drove you to enter those competitions. I think for me it was. I'm always I'm always looking at doing new things. I'm always no matter what you do, you know, if I take something away, I just fill the space with something else. Um, I was taking advantage of the space that I had to create imagery. I'd always, you know, living in living and having a sound in Torquay and Devon, you know, it's, it's the arse end of nowhere, let's face it. Do you know what I mean? It's beautiful and I love living there. And, you know, I can see the sea from my balcony and all the rest of it. It's stuff. Yeah. You know, it's not the centre of, of the hair world at all. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, um, probably known for 40 Towers at the best. And that was in the yeah, 70s. Yeah, of course, that was um, Torquay, wasn't it? So, yeah, and, and, yeah. and then the hotel more recently with um, that guy, uh, Mark. From the hotel, did you ever see that? That TV Channel 4 program? Yes, I did it. actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I used to actually cut his hair and he used to be really nice. He used to be really nice. Okay, then he came in and said, I've got this deal with Channel 4, we're doing the hotel. I want to go crazy 40 Towers. So I want to look like a 70s mad professor. So give 70s, 80s, give me this sort of mad mullety thing. And I was like, just don't tell anyone I cut your hair, okay? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone, Mark, right? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so but the, yeah, that, and then the competition thing was, you know, I think it is about getting your name on on the map it's about being in Torquay about letting people know that you exist social media I mean if it mm. wasn't for social media as well I mean I would still just be counting here in Torquay in my salon that's fine mm. but you know it's enabled me social media combination of so, so, uh, social media and competition work even if you're just getting the content for the competition even if you're not winning it you're creating a collection you're creating a you know a look a mm. book or whatever it may be that gives you the content to get out there and hopefully get noticed yeah um, and that's the whole point and even now you know Winning awards mostly now is focused on the Lions Barber Collective, um, mm. and that's to try and raise awareness for that and credibility for that and, yeah. and awareness within the industry because I want everybody in the industry to be able to have those skills mm. and that, yeah, that, yeah. that, that uh, um, ability to help others. Mm. Well, on saying that, let's go into the Lions Barber Collective because obviously that's such an important part of your life now, isn't it? And I just want to state a few facts before we talk about that for anybody that's listening who doesn't know the lions barber collective tom is the founder and we're going to go into what it's about well it deals with a lot of things but it's uh, one of the big 
things is about suicide, male suicide. But I just want to state some facts here that I think it's important for people to know about. Three times as many men as women die by suicide. 75% male and 25% female, although more females attempt suicide than males, which I thought was interesting. Men aged 40 to 49 have the highest suicide rates in the UK. Suicide is the most common cause of death for those aged 10 to 19. Men report lower levels of life satisfaction than women, according to the government's National Wellbeing Survey. Men are less likely to access psychological therapies than women. Only 36% of referrals to the NHS talking therapies are for men, and nearly three quarters of adults who go missing are men. There's 87% of rough sleepers are men. Men are nearly three times as likely as women to become dependent on alcohol and three times as likely to report frequent drug use. Men are more likely to be compulsory detained or sectioned for treatment than women and men are more likely to be victims of violent crime, 1.5 more likely than women. And finally, men make up the vast majority of the prison population. There are high rates of mental health problems and increasing rates of self-harm in prisons. So many facts there, I think, that are interesting and that still, I feel, a lot of people don't know about. And as we know, I think, Tom, with men, it's still a subject, even though it's becoming, you know, more talked about and more apparent, it's still something that some people like to brush under the carpet and not talk about. And I know you lost your friend to suicide. I just wondered if you could explain, obviously without going into too much detail, but just about what happened and what then made you create the Lions Barber Collective because of what happened to your friend? Yeah, of course. It's, it's um, a story I've told many times now. And I, think yeah. that, and I do think it does help as well. It does help with that a healing process. But it was a case of seeing him probably three, four days beforehand, you know, in the street and having a, having a small talk conversation in passing. I was on my break from the salon and just that little, just that little bit of chat, you know, and... and um, off he went, off I went, and then I found out on social media a few days later that he'd actually taken his life. And mm. I was literally just going to sleep with mine, just plugged my phone in, and it flared up, you know. And social media started going crazy, and yeah. Uh, and I didn't sleep that much that night, and I was thinking, why, you know, why would he do that? Why did he feel like he was so alone? Why did he feel that suicide was the option? You know, all this, and also started thinking about what if. What if I'd been there for him? What if I'd noticed? What if I'd asked? When you saw him, did you have any inclination? Not at all. Anything? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, maybe now I might have, um, because I'm more aware of that. Mm. But, you know, what if, and it's about being more self-aware of other people's yeah, behaviour. But mm. I think what if I'd asked him if he was suicidal, and he said yes, back then... Would I have known what to do? And the answer yeah. is like, no, no way. I would have been, mm. I would have just shit myself. And also, a lot of people, if you ask them, they wouldn't really admit it, would they? Yeah, I mean, if I, 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 it's a difficult, it's a difficult question, and it's a really important question. I can, I can say hand on heart that actually everyone I've asked, are you suicidal? Do you have a plan? Or do you want to take your life? Um, and it's answered yes, it's still alive today. Yeah. Um, so it's a really important question. Mm. Um, there's some people I wish I could have asked, him being one of them, a couple of, uh, and Sam Wall being another, who we lost last year. Mm. Um, a very difficult time through that. But, you know, it, it's it's a really, really important question and it's something we need to re- remove our, our 
fear from asking. Mm. Because it's more about our fear of what they say. Yeah. And us not being prepared to hear that. Um, if we can remove that, then we can make a massive impact. Mm. Um, but that, I mean, that, that sort of led on. The big thing that led me on to doing the Lions Bible Collective was at his funeral in a crematorium. I was, it was absolutely packed. I was at the front, I was ushered to the front of the room, stood next to him in, in his coffin on my right hand side, looking back at all the faces that, you know, poured over out into the, into mm. the lobby of the crematorium. There's still so many people that I couldn't get in. Um, and that, had a huge impact and still does that memory. I can still see all those faces because normally you would just be concentrating on your emotions and looking at the looking at the coffin, looking at the person speaking in the back of a load of heads. Yeah. But I was in a flip reversal, stood next to him, looking back at all these faces of love and loss and fear mm. and and hurt and thinking, how could he have this many people that loved mm. him that didn't and he still felt like he didn't have anyone, he still felt that suicide was the only option. Mm. That really, for me, is a massive driving force and that wake us that we need to do something mm. something needs to happen young men like this who can't how old lie. is he he's 27 wow so he was only young and I didn't know anything about suicide mental health like I said I had a really good upbringing I wasn't really aware of it I mean mm. obviously everyone has mental health everyone does no matter who you are and mm-hmm. uh, you all have a brain hopefully <laughs> we, we sometimes I feel like a day debatable sometimes, sometimes I feel like a day <laughs> melted away but yeah I think it's really 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 important um, to do that and I just wanted to that's wanted to make a difference and it kind of manifested itself really yeah. you know the lines kind of happened it was a one off project I've got a group of barbers together we created a lookbook we wanted to sell it and raise awareness we got sponsors and wanted to have it in coffee tables and barber shops and when people pick it up to look for a haircut they want to get that mental health and, mm. and when the guy suggested mental health as the charity we raised money for I thought shit how did I not even think about that as a charity because mm. I was completely unaware there was mental health charity I've been affected by it I lost a friend to suicide I didn't know there were services out there. So mm. how many people out there still are suffering alone, don't know what's out there, don't want to talk to anyone, mm. in, and end up taking their life. So that was the real driving force and it's manifested it into manifested itself into some crazy wild beast that I'm still trying to catch up with. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah. It was never intended. Yeah, you know, people some said to me, like, how do I get messages? Like, I want to start a charity for mental health. What did you do? How do you do it? What was your business plan? I said, look, I just did it. Mm. I did it. I wanted. I did it, and I've worked. I've learned along the way. I've worked out how to do these business plans and this constitutions. And yeah. That. So, how does the Lion Bar- Lions Barber Collective work? It's just for people that are listening who don't know about it. Okay. Obviously, I realise it's about raising awareness for suicide prevention, but it's also about training barbers and yeah. I believe hairdressers now yeah, as well yeah, right? definitely. Yeah, definitely. spread over into recognising the signs in a client and obviously trying to have the right conversation with them right yeah that's correct yeah, so I mean our vision is a world free from suicide and we aim to create non-clinical non-judgmental spaces where people feel comfortable to talk about their mental health mm. and then be able to listen to them and offer them help and signpost them to the right things that are out there the right resources that we're not trying to turn people into hairdressers and barbers and the therapists or counsellors mm-hmm. the complete opposite of that but the idea is that we we want we raise awareness and we do that through campaigning things like talking on this podcast mm. uh, pop-up barber shops we were just at Brighton Bear Festival which was great fun uh, last <laughs> week uh, two weekends ago absolutely brilliant I bet they loved you though oh yeah I went down the street <laughs> and I had the shorts on and everything <laughs> <laughs> it was great um, so yes yeah, so we had we had that uh, you know we do things like that we get out into the place and you know offering a free haircut especially in these sort of workplaces like you know, like Brixham the fishing town the fishermen come and sit in the chair 
for a free haircut and then we mm. mug them with information about mental health and then they, do you know what a lot of the time they go actually do you know what it's really hard being out on the boats and blah blah, blah. Mm. and they just open up and talk about it. something about like safety with that barber chair or hair chair where people feel comfortable to open up and talk yeah. so we get that out there and do lots of places hopefully we've just got a brand new massive off marquee six by four meters that's all branded bright yellow and we're going to go to different festivals and different events just be mm. out there so raising awareness is a big key for us getting the conversation talk around mental health and how to listen how to react and the other thing we do is training training barbers training hairdressers training beauticians we're in, in such an amazing position mm. such a trusted position such a privileged position mm. and i honestly believe you know that we can make a difference to the nation's mental health if we can look after the hair and beauty industry if we can look after us and yeah. train us and look after each other we can make a difference because everyone can get access to hairdressers or barbers. The infrastructure is incredible. It's yeah. on every high street. It's on village, city. It's everywhere. It's accessible mm. to everyone. And I think that you know this training needs to be part of our part of our toolkit because yeah. you know we're talking about. So when we do our training, anyone who's done the MBQs, you do the health and safety part and your physical health safety. You learn about psoriasis and ringworm and head lice and yeah. all those gruesome close-up pictures of skin diseases <laughs> and things. Now the and do you know what? I've been cutting hair 20 years and I've come across that a handful of times. Mm. Generally, mostly headlights on kids. But, you know, mental health, we're not taught about how to have those conversations. We're not taught about the safety. We're not taught about how we can signpost people. You know, if we have a moment of crisis on a Saturday night at mm. six o'clock when everyone else has gone home and someone breaks down your chair, what do you do? Yeah. Try keeping us safe as well as that person. Mm. And I honestly think that it needs to be part of the curriculum. And the training that we're doing, and I am working on something with ETCT, I can't announce it yet, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do honestly believe, you know, I deal with people's mental health every single day behind the chair. Every time mm. I'm behind the chair, people come to us for first dates, they come to us for interviews, they come for us for weddings, christenings, stag do's, nights yeah. out, all these amazing great times. But they also come to us for divorces and redundancies mm. and, and funerals and yeah. breakups. And mm. So we're there for them, yeah. for the ups and downs of their lives, and mm. probably the most emotional parts of their lives, when other people aren't so yeah. i think it's really important that the hair and beauty industry has these skills mm. and i think we can make a massive dent on the on the mental health issues and yeah. problems of the nation by doing it i think i said to you when we first chatted about doing this podcast was that you well, i had therapy in my 30s because i had a bit of a breakdown and you know suffered from depression and anxiety and everything and i um i remember my therapist saying to me at the time she specialized in anxiety and she said to me about how she thought hairdressers should be trained to recognise and have these conversations. Yeah. This was like 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, I was 30 when this was going on. And I remember sitting to her saying, you know, why do you say that? And she said, well, Neil, you know, at the end of the day, she was like, I just want to tell you, without divulging too much information, a lot of my clients are hairdressers. Yeah. Because she said, I think, you know, you listen and talk to people all day and chat to them and you take on all their stuff. Yeah. Because she was saying, you know, touching somebody's head is is something that you wouldn't normally allow anybody to do. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't let somebody come up on the street and start messing with your hair and no. rubbing your scalp and, and, and Yeah, exactly. I'm the cutthroat razor. But, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And she was saying that it breaks down so many barriers yeah. straight away between you and that person. Yeah. And it allows people to then feel like they can open up to you. Yeah. She said, but, you know... On the flip side of what you're trying to do, she was saying that we're not trained to deal with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But actually, I think what you're doing is like a step 
further than that because it's trying to help the people that are sat in the yeah. chair who come with their and open up with their issues yeah. and their problems. It's very, like, you know, it's very important. Like I just mentioned a second ago, I honestly believe that if we can look after the hair and beauty industry, then they can look after the entire nation. Mm. I honestly believe that we can pretty much make a massive, massive impact yeah. on the mental health of this country, but and other countries globally. Um, but I do, like you said, there. I, there's something that there's a proposal that's in the government at the moment. Mm. Um, hasn't been picked up yet. I've pushed it around, and we've had some help from police crime commissioners and other MPs about it. But the idea is that I want to provide. Uh, or the Lions Barber Collective to provide um, something which is a working title. Don't beat me up too much for it, but it's going to be called something like Hairline. And it's an offloading service, similar to Samaritans, for the hair and beauty industry, but run by volunteers who are trained, like Samaritans, mm. um, to listen and have an offloading service. And so that they can support the hair and beauty industry. When you finish work, what happens? You come to you go to work, you work behind the chair all day, you do 10 clients, 12 clients, 20 clients, and you get home, the other half says, how was work? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. I'm just knackered. Just put, I don't know, whatever yeah. on TV and chill yeah. out and watch nothing. Yeah, just rather than, you But actually, we're just taking on everyone else's shit all mm. day, every day. And there's only so much time you can do that. We need, if you're a Samaritan, if you're a therapist, counsellor, psychiatrist, you have to offload. Yeah. You yeah. have to. It's part of the law. You for those roles. You mm. have to offload. We don't have anyone to offload to. So I honestly believe, I know there's things like Samaritans, whatever, but the hair industry is very insular. It's very us against them. You know, like mm. we talked about earlier on, we don't like academics. We don't like, we are the hairdressers and we are, it's our identity. Mm. I am a hairdresser. I am a barber. I am a beautician. And, you know, it's very much, you know, we've had that taken away from us for the last 18 months. So I think it's even mm. more so than ever with our identity. And I think if we can have something for us, mm. by us, People can relate on the other end of the phone. They don't have to understand, but they can relate. They can say, yeah, yeah we can have that space where they can go after work, on your way home, you can have a text service or a phone call and say, yeah, I had a really bad day today. I've got two of my clients in. Someone's having an affair. Someone's doing this. I've taken this all on. I just want to just offload and just get that off our chest yeah, so that we can help, like I say, look after the hair and beauty industry and then, and then they can look after the nation. And it's something mm. that we're trying to provide, find funding for. We've got proposals at government, like I said. So if there's anyone listening to this, anyone, you know, and I, you know, I would love it if someone like a like a L'Oreal or a, or a Weller or whoever just come on and say, look, we're going to fund this to support our industry because mm. we can make a massive difference. Yeah. And I think that just shows the value of the hair and beauty industry. Yeah. One, of, one of the underlying values that people don't realise, mm. um, although they may have during lockdown when, they couldn't see their hairdresser. Well, the, I was just about to say that the whole lockdown experience, people, has shown how much we are, as hairdressers, barbers, are needed yeah. by the by everybody. Because so many people were just literally like, I've got to get my hair done. And you realise that it's so much part of the feel-good factor, making yourself feel better if you're feeling like crap. You know what I mean? Like you say, people come for all different reasons. You know, yeah. if they're not just going out or to a party, they maybe they've had a breakup or whatever. And obviously, through lockdown, people went through so much shit. You oh, know, course, yeah. sort of mentally. You know, I know people that broke up with their partners. I mean, you know, I know people that got together with people. Yeah. So it, it's it's all over the place, isn't it? And everybody was just like, need to go and get my hair done. Need to go and get my face done. Need to go and get my you know my beard trimmed or whatever it was. And I think that really emphasise the importance of what we do and I was in a way I was quite pleased that that happened because I feel like it gave our industry a massive boost yeah in terms of people recognizing it for what yeah. it and really government is recognizing us is that actually, actually yeah like just a chucked in with like hospitality or whatever we're actually yeah. recognized now which hopefully is a step forward yeah um 
and yeah, I think it is. It's it's a probably the, the most valued we've been as an industry yeah, ever, yeah. and I think that partly that is not just because people you know, don't know how to cut hair, but also that connection. I know I had somebody tell me that it was a friend of my mum saying that they broke down because they they couldn't see their hairdresser, and it been it wasn't just because of the haircut; it was more because they seen that person every six weeks for the last ten years, yeah, and they, they couldn't see. There was their friend who's been taken away from that. That chill out time, that yeah. you know, offloading time, and then I had another guy whose hair I cut on the fourth of July when we opened up again. I went around his house and cut his hair, and um, it was fine, chatting away, yeah, blah blah. And as soon as I started cutting his hair, he broke down, and started crying. Wow! And of course, I stopped. I come round to the front of him, get mm. down, you know, squat down, ask him, everything okay? You know, what's what's going on? Um, she needs to talk to me about anything. You tell me anything? And he's like, honestly, I'm totally fine. It was, I haven't been touched. By another human for so many three months, whatever it was, mm. was it three months, four months, mm. four months, yeah. You know, because I live by myself, yeah. I haven't had. And as soon as you touch me, this overwhelming, yeah, feeling of emotions and waves because I haven't had that human that oxytocin that's released when we have that human mm. contact. And mm. he said, I've never even realised I was feeling that way. Yeah, but until that moment, I think that's hugely powerful. God, that, yeah, massive. Wow, that's quite incredible, isn't it? Really, that it affected somebody in that way and a man as well. Mm. You know, that wasn't. A female, or no. it was that was a male. Yeah, it was. Would you say it was quite sort of alpha male in the sort of person I, that he is? Yeah, or? I wouldn't say he's feminine in any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Yeah. You know, he's a quite a big. Bloke I'm only asking that because I think sometimes thing. people think, oh, maybe it was, you know, yeah, yeah. in but touch I, with his feminine side, which I hate that saying we, anyway. We've but all got, you know, we've all got emotions. We've all got this. You know, it's been drummed into, especially men from a young age. Mm. That, you know, be strong, don't fail, you've got to win, don't give up, you know, stoic and blah, yeah, blah, blah. That's yeah. And, you know, but then people tell us, people, you know, people tell us to man up or whatever. And I think it's so, it's so damaging. I think when people do actually, when men open up and they talk about it, the response they get is key. And unfortunately, yeah. the response they get from the friends and women in their lives or whatever is normally quite negative. Mm. Not because I don't, I don't think they, they want to damage it or want to be negative towards mm. you but it's because they shit themselves they don't know what to do and they go into this automatic mode of like, oh you'll be alright you'll be fine have another pint or oh we need you to be strong now or yeah. you're, you know, I don't like seeing you like this this isn't what you're like you're normally the strong one and mm. they put this back onto them yeah. and actually you know I think we're telling people to talk all the time talk about it talk about it talk about it and it's everywhere isn't it I mean yeah. I know I'm engulfed with it because mental health is my thing but actually you know we need to I think it can be quite dangerous we need to start telling people how to respond, how mm. to listen, how to, you know, it's okay if someone opens up and talks to you, and it's probably taken them months or weeks or whatever to build up that courage to go, actually, do you know what, I'm really struggling, I really yeah. don't know what to do, finances are bad, or, oh, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm unhappy at home, or whatever, I don't know, whatever it may be. Mm. And the response has to be, even if you don't know what to say, it has to be, thank you for telling me, I feel really privileged that you wanted to open up to me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I might not know what to say or what to do or understand, but I'm here to listen if you want to talk to me. Mm. And just let that person talk. Because a lot yeah. of the time, we can solve our own issues. Um, we don't need to fix or solve anything, you know. It's about giving that person that platform to be able to fix and solve themselves. And, yeah. You know, I had a, a, a really key example of that is I had a guy come and sit in at Lions HQ down in Torquay, come and chat to me and he said that he was struggling he had a person I just saw there he'd been waiting 18 months to be seen at home he's fallen out of his other half and they you know he wanted to get out of the house but they wouldn't let him because they were worried about his uh, being safe if he left the house in his, mm. in, his, in his rage or whatever it was um, he wanted to do 
he was a bit of an artist. His his um, studio was full up with everyone else's crap, was his words in the garage or attic yeah. or wherever it was. Uh, and then I just carried on listening to him. It was a couple of hours and chatting away to me. And uh, he went on to tell me that they actually had a studio apartment down by the harbour. And it was a bit of a mess. Mm. And I didn't really use it. Perhaps he could clean that up and put his art stuff in there and use that as a studio because his wife would know where he was. He would have a place to go do his art. When he wants to get escape, he can go mm. there. Blah, blah, blah. And at the end of it, I just said to him, like, so when are you going to go and sort out, the, sort out the studio that flat and make it into your little art? Yeah, your safe haven. He went, that's a really good idea. Mm. I, like, Look, I didn't have a clue you even had that. For <laughs> do you know what I mean? You told yeah. you solved it out yourself. And actually, do you know what I mean? No one likes being told what to do. No. You know, but actually we all, I think deep down we all know what we need to do is try and get us out of those problem spaces yeah. in our lives. Sometimes we sort of don't want to admit it in a way, don't we? We sort of, I think, and I've talked about this in the past about how you get comfortable with how you're feeling. Mm. You know what I mean? Because you're like, I'm used to this feeling. So yeah. this, I'll stay there. Yeah, because I even though I don't like it, it's what I've it's got normal. used to. Yeah. It's become your normal, isn't it? Yeah. But sometimes you need that jolt of course do, to yeah. get you out of that normal a little bit. I mean, I I know I'm guilty of that myself. Oh, but we all are. We all are. Yeah. It's comfort, it's comfort zone stuff, isn't it? I, the only time that I've ever succeeded or, got, or you know uh, gone further in my career or taken a step up is every time I've been out of my comfort zone. Yeah. So the first time I was asked to do education, I shit myself for a year, mm. basically, whilst I was prepping and planning everything. He <laughs> put me in for the following year. Yeah. Terrified, I actually had a panic attack whilst I kept my mates here. I got put on anti-anxiety drugs. I did, yeah. And my dad said to me, look, you don't have to do it, mm. but you'll never get asked to do it again. Or you can do it, and if you fuck up, they'll never ask you to do it again. But if it does, all right, there might be another opportunity. Yeah. Right? I've got to do it. I did it, and it, you know, Enter me into the world of education, which allowed me to travel, go to the world, see places like Hawaii, mm. Australia, whatever. And then, you know, the other thing was doing a TED talk. I got off to a TED talk, didn't want, didn't want to do it because mm. I was scared because I was, I held him in such high regard. And my wife was pregnant two days. She was due two days before the due date, before the date of the TED talk. And I was praying the whole time, please have the baby. Please <laughs> have the baby. I didn't want to do it. I couldn't get an about it. And I, but I did it. But that gave me, you know, I did a TED talk. I've done a TED talk. That's just incredible for me. Like, yeah. I think I actually did that, which enabled me to become more comfortable being a public speaker because nothing will ever be as hard as doing that TED talk. Yeah. So, you know, and I think it opens up those times where you get out of your normal feelings and push yourself out mm. of it. It's so easy to stay there, isn't yeah. it? Even if you're not yeah. happy there, mm. it's easy. And I think that's something we all need to, we all, we all need to do. We all, we all have those comfort zones. No, totally. So cut to now, yeah. you've just opened a barbershop in Carnaby Street. Right in Soho. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it, because obviously I know. Well, we discussed this morning because I wasn't sure, but it's sort of in conjunction with uh, the guys from War Paint, Danny yeah. Gray, who right. I've interviewed for my podcast, the last series. That's the amazing great listen, Danny. Listen to that, yeah. yeah, thank you. Just tell us a little bit how this came about and why why Carnaby Street, why London? Well, it's, it's, it's a strange one, really, because I, I so with the Lives Bible Collective, I always wanted to create a sustainable model that was created through value rather than guilt donations. You know, like look at this lame donkey, look at this starving child, give us your money. You know, yeah. all those kind of, I always wanted to try and create some sense of value around it. So pay us for the pop ups, or pay us for a haircut, or pay us for. So I thought, right, the only way to really do that is Lives Bible Collective. It's all about creating a safe space in the community barbershops if we can have our own barbershops we can actually use the the the, the, the money we're making there once we not as a non-profit make pay the barbers pay the overheads pay all that sort of stuff off and all the money that's left goes back into being able to train all the hairdressers and barbers that in that area 
create sustainability as a charity mm. and give it all to them for free. Because like I said, I think we all need that training. I don't think barbers mm. and hairdressers have to pay for it. Hopefully we can create the self-sustainability well, model. I've been thinking about that for a while. I actually talked with uh, Network Rail about doing some stuff with them and the same wow. sort of thing. Mm. Um, and GWR. Uh, and then I had met Danny last year mm. and we had a good we had a couple of conversations about stuff and uh, um, about wall paint and about perhaps we can get wall paint into barbershops and it's a really good link I just met I just got on with Danny straight away really mm. really quickly and I think we both had the same thing with his mental health story the story of us with our mental health you know yeah. mission and then it came I suppose it was God, we come up to London I can't remember when it was seven or eight months ago and uh, he, he told me look We've got this space in London as a wall paint store. It's going to be the first men's makeup store in the world. Um, it's going to be like a mental well-being space. It's going to be a complete journey from the start for the client as soon as mm. you come in. And, and there's going to be there's lots of other stuff that's coming soon as well, which I'm mm. really excited about. And he said, look, I'd like to gift you a space at the back of the shop um, to do Lyle's Barber stuff um, and have a Lyle's Barber shop there and do training, mm. do whatever you want to do there. Um, and that and that's kind of how it started. And the fact that Danny and Warpaint gifted gifted us that space means there's no overheads at all for us, which is incredible. Yeah, we've had um, Aston and Fincher donated all of the furniture for us, mm-hmm. stuff so the barbers chairs, the, the brushes, the water yeah. sprays, the, ga- the gowns were donated to us by Neocape. Then later, Danny and that fitted out the fitted out the shop. Um, timely, the guys at Timely provide the sound software, so it's actually cost us nothing wow, to open a store on Carnaby Street, which mm. is ridiculous, absolutely yeah. ridiculous. You know, and Carnaby Street is one of the most famous streets in the world. I mean, when it comes to men's fashion, yeah, you know, it's iconic. So the idea of having a space there was just incredible, and you know, we we, we that is kind of our initial thing, and hopefully, we'll use the funds from from this to train more barbers in the London area, mm. also open more live barbers store, store so we can actually have them around the country uh, connecting with the local resources connecting with local councils police mm. the, yeah and make it as a space as a hub really um, yeah. to to hopefully have a positive impact on the mental health of that community mm. amazing so what's next for you and the Lions Barber Collective obviously I know there's some things in the pipeline that you you said earlier, you know, you can't talk about too much, but yeah, there's. I mean, there's a couple of things in the pipeline. There's a couple of things going on, but one of the things we're really excited about is the Collective Pride Awards, which is um, which you can actually enter now. That's CollectivePrideAwards.co.uk, and the idea of that was um, we talked about awards and the importance mm-hmm. of it and all the rest of it. Um, but the idea was I wanted to create an award that celebrated those who make a difference for the, their community, make a difference for their clients, make a difference for the industry, mm-hmm. um, and instead of you know. It, I mean, it is fantastic. I love the awards. I love celebrating the, the creativeness and the and the vision of some of these amazing hair stylists mm. and barbers and I'm not devaluing that at all. But I also think sometimes we forget about the clients. We forget about those people who are making a difference to people's lives, impact people's lives. So the idea of that, the Collective Pride Awards, is is basically that enter people who are beyond the business, who mm. are more than a barber rather than just a barber, more than a yeah. hair stylist. And, and go, go over there and enter people. This could be people who are who cut your hair. Mm-hmm. You could enter them. If they helped your, you know, did they help save your life? Or they're a lifesaver mm-hmm. in the sense of you were going through really shit times for a divorce or something, but they were always there for you and made yeah. you feel great. That kind of thing. We want to celebrate that. And that's being held on uh, January the 17th, which traditionally through Monday, which is maybe the most depressing day of the year. So we want to try and lift that up. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, it's held in the Barber Surgeons Hall, which is the iconic 700-year-old mm. site of the, uh, the worship company Barber Surgeons. So that's going to be really great fun, and we're just, yeah, we want as many entries as possible on mm. that, just to celebrate. Where do you find all your energy from? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I thought I was quite energetic, but I mean, it's amazing everything that you're doing, but you're literally this is happening and that's happening and yeah you, there's loads of stuff going on and I think it's something that you know I, I'm so passionate about it's become mm. my purpose you know my, yeah. my, my you know, I love doing hair I don't get me wrong I love cutting men's hair I love styling I love doing the global barber director thing and all that but I've actually found that with lockdown I had 18 months to not travel the world not yeah. cut hair mm-hmm. and I was focused solely on this and we trained over 400 hair professionals we we developed the Collective Pride Awards. We've I've been talking with VTC to you about something really exciting. We've got um, potential partnerships with Network Rail and and um, and GWR. Just on the phone to Great uh, Sussex um, Fire Service about doing some stuff with them and and broadening out into the into the real world rather than yeah. staying inside our industry bubble, which is really mm-hmm. nice. And, um, and there's another book that I just finished, which is going to be done. Uh, yeah. A children's book come out last month, yeah, which I've uh, just got here. <laughs> yeah. And you've got two because you've got two books already, haven't you? Do you want to just com- yeah, quickly so, tell us about those, just so people know? Yeah, so the Barber Boom came out a couple, about is five. Barber Boom, Barber Boom. Oh, yeah, I read Barber Room. Why did I? Like <laughs> I <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barber Boom came out, and that was the self-published one. And that's the interviews, and that's the idea of that is basically if you're gonna especially if you're starting out in the industry, it's quite a good book to read to show all the different people in different areas of the hair industry. So some of them are mm. shop managers and manage like big chains. Some of them are people who've got their own product line. Some of them are people who are stage platform yeah. Some are really famous and you'd know them, but other ones have own franchises. You know, right. They have hugely successful financially and other ones are and just kind of a way of showing people the different avenues that you can take really. Yeah. And yeah. So that's good. And then the, the Barber Talk, which was on Trigger Publishing, which came out a couple of years ago, which is mm. a bit of a memoir, really. It's about the journey of the Lives Barber Collective, my childhood, how we came... It's basically similar to what we've been talking about today, really. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it was a quite a difficult process, because, it, mm. as you just said, I don't stop. I'm always doing this stuff. I had to sit and reflect yeah. and write this. And I found myself crying in tears, writing some of these things down, mm. you know, um, in hotel rooms in Holland and places like that. Um <laughs> Because it's kind of quite emotive. Cause yeah, I'm you're sure. reliving these these moments. So that was really good. And then um, the Mighty Lions and the Big Game came out. Um, our Welbeck Kids publishing on the twenty second of July. Mm-hmm. So it's only just come out. But that's my uh, my children's book. I always want to write. People can't book. see this because I've, I've got <laughs> it in my hand. It's available. It's available everywhere now. It's um, it, and it, it's a, it's a. I got two boys. And I wanted to write a book about for kids, and it's about. The idea came from a, a study that I saw and read a couple of years ago. It was about the difference in how we treat young boys and young girls in sport. Right. So it was like the young girls around baseball, when they missed the ball, they were encouraged. And, oh, don't worry. Or next time, there's another opportunity. When the boys were missing it, they were shouting at going, come on, you need to do better than that. Come on. you." Yeah, and they were sort of scorned. And it was interesting for me because, like I said earlier on, I never really had that as a childhood. And I thought, oh, my God, that's why I feel comfortable to try things because I always felt safe. Yeah. And I think that was really important. I want to try and put that message into a book. So that message is still in there, but it also comes down to things like failure. And it's a message there for the parents as well. Like, you know, failure is an event, not a person. It doesn't matter if you fail. We love you anyway. And all this. Yeah. And, and it's really, it's, I mean, you couldn't even 
predict it, but it's called the My Lions in the Big Match. It's about a group of young lions who get to the final of the cup. They feel like they've got to win the cup for everyone. And they're playing against a team. Hang on, <laughs> <Yeah. that's> me. <laughs> <laughs> they're playing against a team wearing blue, right? Um, and and uh, it all comes down to a, a young lion and the penalty. Um, and he's wearing an Arsenal kit, so it's uh, you know it's. I mean, I've had a few of my friends say, "Can you write another one where we win the cup um, <laughs> for the World Cup?" But you know, it's a. It's, a, it's an interesting. Uh, I think it's mad that that actually happened, but it's, it's yeah. a great and it's great to write a children's book. And I've got I've written a couple more that I've got drafts of. I'd like mm. to hopefully do some more. Do you know it's interesting as well with what's happened, obviously with European Cup because obviously we lost, England lost. Yeah, but I think there was so much pressure put on them to win, wasn't it? And all the sort of all the post sort oh, of it's awful. stuff that's gone on, which was so horrible, and I hate it. And my partner's Italian, mm. so. Bastard. He, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so you imagine it. I mean, I, I'm not a massive football fan, but we did watch it the match. It, it, it does like unite that. everybody, but I hate how it then segregated everybody yeah, afterwards. Yeah. I know it's a small minority of people that caused all the problems, vocal, but, but so vocal and it was so out there. And and really, it's sport. Yeah, someone has to lose, someone has to win. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And if you lose, it's not the end of the world. No. No. Do you know what I mean? No. It's more the end of the world for the people watching it is the players because they know they've got to get they've got to pull their socks up, get on with it, they've got a football season starting soon. Yeah. They need to get back to training and get on with it. I'm not saying it didn't affect them because it probably did. And I think mm. probably more damaging was that not the actual missing of penalties and losing the game, more the more the attacking and the yeah. and it just like you know, in a, in a, it's very disappointing in a sense that, you know, we've been through this lockdown and one thing that I think it's enabled, it's enabled the world to stop. Mm. It's enabled us to reflect on stuff. It's enabled, you know, you look at all the stuff that happened with Black Lives Matter. You look at the stuff of, of violence against women, mm. um, mental health. We've yeah. stopped those things happen anyway all the time. But because we're all so bloody caught up in our own little world and our own little worries and problems, it gets brushed under the carpet and moves on very mm. quickly in this world of social media. Or Twitter is constant news, twenty four hour news, and all mm. the rest of it. And actually, in that moment, you know, Black Lives Matter, we stopped and we thought about it, and reflected on it, and we actually sort of reflect on it ourselves I feel you know yeah. we, we looked at you know and I even took some diversity and inclusivity training myself off my own back so I thought actually no I want to you know find mm. out a bit more about this and why you know uh, unconscious bias and all the rest of it and, and um, uh, violence against women and all mm. those kind of things looking at and talking to that and finding out from people that you know if I women if they saw me walking down the street at night they'd be scared because I'm six foot three I'm 20 stone and I'm covered in tattoos and I would never I would never think that because mm. I know that I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, but actually made me more conscious of that. And even since then, I've sort of walked. Yeah, if I see if I see a girl walking by herself even at night or whatever, I will walk away from. I'll step cross over or mm. give them a bit more space or whatever, and just be a bit more conscious bit more aware, of our, aware yeah. of ourselves. And I think the same. We've come out the other side, and people have just forgotten about it straight away. And yeah. it's just like, no, no, come on, God, we've actually we've actually had this time yeah. to reflect. Let's make us better on the out, on, on the other side of this pandemic. Let's grow from this and be kind to each other. Yeah. You know, everyone goes on about being kind to each other, but as soon as it something doesn't go their way, yeah. they're quick to attack, and it's just awful. Yeah. You know? So where's the book available? The Mighty Lions and the Big Match, by the way, it's called. That book is available everywhere. everywhere. It's, it's absolutely crazy. It's yeah. like Waterstones, W. H. Smith. Amazon is yeah. globally available on Amazon, which is absolutely wild, and you know it's an amazing thing to see that. And mm. I never thought that I would have a, have a kids' book out there, um, but it's just nice for it's nice for the boys nice as to well. Have done, yeah. You know, it's lovely yeah. to have done, and you know, and I'm saying with that, I've just finished another book. It's just gone in for 
um, just having this final edit at mm. the moment, which is um, how to listen. So men will talk, which is going to come out in Welbeck, mm. and that is going to be a really handy uh, book that's basically around our four pillars: you know, recognize, ask, listen, and help, mm. so that anybody out there can have this handbook to them they can read it and they should be able to recognize the signs in anyone asking questions listen well and help that person find the help they need but also touches on our own mental fitness and our own mm-hmm. mental well-being how to look after yourself as well um and that book comes out say next year on Welbeck, um, mm-hmm. and that'll be available everywhere but it's just really exciting because i do believe that mental health and suicide is a is a needle in a haystack situation yeah it happens anywhere anytime and actually what we really need is the eyes and ears of the entire community mm ready to ask, ready to listen, ready to help, um, and have those skills. Because, you know, one of the best things that's happened out of this is I publicly tell people, as I am now, it's okay to talk to me. Mm. If I go out for a night out in Torquay, I've even had it happen up here in London once, someone recognised me, what I'd, you're the mental health guy, basically, is what they normally say. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they go, well, I lost my dad yesterday, or I've lost my job, or I've gone through this. And they just opened up to me there yeah. and then. You know, my mates think it's annoying because they're like, oh, Tom's off council again. But how amazing is that? That I can go out for a night out or mm. go for somewhere, walk in town or in a park or and someone recognise me and they just know that I'm a safe person to talk yeah. to. But we can all do that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I'm going to move on, Tom, just for a bit of fun. Finally, the quick fire round. The pressure. This is no pressure, but this is pressure. where people will maybe get to find a different side of you Uh-oh. as well. You can answer one word, sentence, divulge, whatever you want to do. It's up to you. First one, what's your guilty pleasure? Two, I'd say. Rest, professional wrestling and Disney. Disney? Yeah, massive professional wrestling and Disney. I'm actually an eight-year-old boy stuck in a 37-year-old <laughs> massive tattooed man's body. <laughs> okay, cool. I guess you were signed up to the Disney Channel then. Oh, of course I am, yeah. 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 I'm going yeah. on Disney Cruise and going to Disney World this year, oh, hopefully. That's, wow. my, that's my addiction. Right. Yeah. Favourite animal? Oh, I suppose it has to be a lion, doesn't it, now? Well, yeah. <laughs> Be rude not to yeah. now. What is the thing you're most afraid of? Oh, fucking eight spiders. Do you? Yeah. Really? Yeah, my wife has you to say like that spider. One. I've got a massive Oh, sp- my God. Oh, <laughs> no, I don't like spiders, no. My um, snakes. Yeah, don't I'm like a bit snakes. Of a I don't like spiders. Don't like heights. Don't like anything that would put my life at death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't even like flying in planes. I'm going to spend half my life on them. Yeah. I must admit, they're not my favourite places to be. Who or what makes you laugh? You today, yeah, great <laughs> <laughs> fun. What was the last film you watched? Oh, Disney God. film. The last film I watched. The last film I watched was Luca. Actually, the Disney Pixar one. We watched it the weekend. Mm-hmm. Times. Coffee or tea? Coffee, black. Right. What's your best asset or personality trait? And what would you say is your best asset? Um, I would say I'm quite. I always got told by everyone I'm too nice, but I don't think you can be too nice. Like, it's, not, you know, it's nice to be nice. People, re- oh, do you know what? Can I tell yeah. you something? People say that to me. Oh, you're so nice, and I always go, I'm nice. But I'm not that fucking nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> so go on. Did, you didn't read. I'll let, no, let no, you finish. No, 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 it's fine. No, so people say I'm too nice, but I think it's you know. I, if I wasn't that, then I wouldn't have done all the things that we've done and the impact that we've had on people and. I don't know. I, I, like, I like to help people. I think, yeah. you know, if I can help people, that, that's opportunities, whether that's, you know, things like Lions Bar Plates, one of my favourite things to use that as a platform to help others who want to come up in the industry and stuff. You know, at Sound International, we've been asked 
We've been given the stage on the Monday spot. I don't know. No one's seen me. Everyone's seen me cut air those times. So, like, well, how about we give some of our Lions ambassadors the opportunity to go out on stage and seeing their faces and seeing that, giving other opportunities. You know, I think yeah. that's that's a really that's really important for me. Yeah. Well, that's weird. I've got. <laughs> It's the word out here. It just says, what's your worst? <laughs> well. Forget that question. Well, you've seen me. Well, we'll go out for a few drinks. You'll see me out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. What chore do you hate doing? What chore do I hate doing? I hate doing washing up. Absolutely. Me too. Oh, it's horrible. I can't stand it. That's why I've got a dishwasher. When was the last time you cried? Uh... Not that long ago, actually. Quite recently, I had a couple of weeks ago, I had a dream that I was dreaming... I took my boy to bed. I, first, I always take my boy to bed, yeah, and I was uh, first asleep singing him to sleep in bed. I had a dream that my all my grandparents that were dead were alive, and we'd moved into our new house, which is taking fucking forever to go through, and it was Christmas, and they were there with my boys, and I woke up, and it wasn't real, and I cried. Oh. Yeah. Do you know when I cried last? It was the Olympics. I just, watching that runner, Adam Jamili, do his interview, saying that he, he just torn his hamstring about half an hour before he went out to run in the uh, heats. <coughs> and he was absolutely gutted. Devastation. I mean, he got on the starting block, and as he took off, he obviously knew that he couldn't. And the interview, he just broke down. And I ended up in tears, because I yeah. just really felt for him. Anyway, last question. <laughs> I thought we were supposed to sit here crying. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I cry at the drop of a hat these days. <laughs> Have you ever done anything illegal? Mode. Yeah. <laughs> Come on then. No, the Do you know what Stuart Roberts said to this? He went, I wouldn't fucking tell you if I had. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I just, I tell you what, I think that, yeah, there's, everyone's done something in their lives that probably wouldn't be allowed. And, and, you know, and actually, I think a lot of the time, I actually went into extra prison to do some stuff. I opened up the barbershop in there for them, got loads of stuff donated. They nicked it all, but we got loads of stuff donated and whatever, set it up and I met a load of them. And, and they were lovely guys. They have Samaritans in there. They were, you know, a lot of them were like empathetic and understood mm. and got the mental health thing. And they're just guys that were, a lot of them probably unlucky. Yeah. Got caught out doing something. I know, I know the stuff I did when I was younger. If I got caught out of it, I'd have been mm. probably in trouble. But luckily, touch wood. Yeah. I haven't had behind, you, behind you. Yeah. I haven't had, I haven't had that before. You know, I'm mm. way past that now. I ain't got the energy to do anything. Illegal, oh, no, no, me neither. But, you know, this is one of those things. And I think well, everyone's done something that they probably think, oh, God, what yeah, if yeah. I'd got caught with that, or I'd done this, or I'd done that, or oh, mm. God, I can't believe we got in the car and drove home that day, and yeah, <laughs> Christ, you know what I mean? yeah, no, totally, yeah. I'm the same. <laughs> I'm not divulging here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Thank you, sir. Is this where the police turn up and nick me? Is exactly. It? <laughs> I've just um... <laughs> stitched me up. <laughs> I've got little secret uh, microphones going around. Thanks, Tom. That's been great. And hopefully everybody that's listening um, has much more of an insight into what you do and obviously the Lions Barber Collective. Just let people know what the website is. So it's just lionsbarbercollective.com. Social media is at the Lions Barbers. Uh, if you want to email us, it's info at the Lions Barbers. Or you can get hold of me directly as uh, Tom at Lions Barber Collective. Mm. And, um, and if there's anybody that's like a hairdresser or salon owner that maybe wants to get their people trained, where, where, where do yeah, they go? Yeah, so if you just contact if you contact me, Tom at Lions Barber Collective, I can set up the training. We're just about to do our first one in Canada soon. Mm. Uh, so we can get on Zoom. We can, get, hope we can do it in real life now, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. If anyone, if anyone wants to book pop-ups, anyone wants to be involved, if anyone wants to get involved and be a volunteer, you know, we're actually doing our first festival post-lockdown up in Calendar area, up in Scotland. Oh, Scotland, yeah. 
called Vibrations. Oh, I do live there. Vibrations Festival. Yeah, yeah we're going to do that soon. You know, but it's, you know, get free entry for a festival. We're going to do a load of haircuts. It's a great final day. It's free haircuts for everyone. But you know, and we'll be finished for the main headliners. You get to go and see the band. If we've got enough people, it's great fun because you just tag in and tag out. So yeah. if you want to see that band play, then make sure you're done. Well, I'll be here for you. And it's yeah. great fun. And we're just doing stuff for mental health. And we're going to be doing a lot more of them. So if anyone thinks that's interesting to them, or they want to be, if we're just about to start a train the trainer mm. thing as well for the Lions Bob Collective for the for the uh, for the barber talk and the hair beauty talk and the hair talk. So if anyone thinks, oh, I wouldn't mind being an educator or facilitator in that, get in mm. touch with me. So I'm about to start that off as well because at the moment it's, it's only two of us and the demand is getting high and I've got yeah. so much to do as well mm. myself. But um, yeah, so yeah, there's lots of opportunities and if, yeah, more the better. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you, and I wish I wish you all the best of luck with everything moving forward because it seems it's all going in the right direction anyway, isn't it? So it's kind of great what you know where it's at but it's all very exciting it's all very exciting there's lots of other things coming up um like Ryan's College of Barbers and the next book and the Collective Pride Awards and hopefully the helpline the airline it's JK Rowling a run for money aren't you with the books well that'd be nice (laughs) if I got a tenth of that (laughs) a hundredth of them would be nice when we see when we see the Mighty Lions on CBBS, then I know you know you've made it yeah Yeah. alright wicked thank you thank you ever so much A big thank you to Tom for taking the time to talk to me and thank you, the listener, for joining us on this episode. Other episodes from Series 3 plus all of Series 1 and 2 of In Bed with Neil Moody are also available on all podcast platforms, so remember to go and subscribe to be notified of any up-and-coming episodes. By the way, there is a unique podcast episode now available that has been filmed for my YouTube channel, Neil Moody, called Minding the Gap, Male Suicide Awareness. I'm talking with my guest, Tom Chapman, who is on this episode, and Rosie Tapner, model-turned-TV presenter, who is the ambassador for the well-being of women and children's air ambulance. We are discussing the importance of continuing to raise male suicide awareness, especially within certain communities where it's still a taboo subject. Music